Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I am privileged each week to serve as your host and your interviewer. You may also know me as the author of numerous leadership books on behalf of the Franklin Covey Company, including the recently released Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, published by HarperCollins, where I've taken and curated some of the most interesting interviews from what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, I've written a story about my top 30 interviews, did so well. We published Master Mentors, Volume 2, based on 30 new uh, 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 podcast guests and insights, perhaps today's guest might uh, be willing to be featured in a future volume. It is the iconic presidential advisor, the expert on leadership, the media commentator, the icon, David Gergen, who you, of course, know from a illustrious 20-year-plus career with CNN. He is one of the only ever advisors to four different presidential administrations, both on the Republican and the Democratic side. He is a professor, a coach, an advisor, a speaker, and all-around great Citizen. His name, of course, is David Gergen, and he joins us today. David, welcome to On Leadership. Terrific, Scott. I'm so pleased to be here. And I must tell you, I'm just amazed and impressed by all the books on the walls that you apparently have read most of them, maybe 90% or so. That's astonishing. And I think, by the way, it's a, it's a major trait for, for really strong leaders. All sorts of CEOs, uh, you know, who are readers, I think, are much better leaders as a result. And, and, and within the military, of course, I don't know if you've gotten to know General Mattis along the way. You're sure you read one of his books or two yeah. of his books. Yeah. But, you know, he's a he's voracious in his reading. And it has made his generalship, his leadership, uh, so much more effective. You know, when he was sent to his last duty station, uh, while he was still active duty, uh, he brought with him 7,000 books. 7,000 books. Those were the books in his library. This is a general. Uh, and he, and one of the reasons he's been so successful is exactly that. So uh, I'm impressed with what you're doing. I, I love the foundations for your work. Well, thank you very much. I am a product of the genius that is the collection of people at Franklin Covey, including the producers and directors yeah. of this podcast, and I myself a voracious writer and reader. David, I want to rewind a little bit because in my opening, I shared some points I want to reiterate. I, you might perhaps be the only ever American in history that has been an advisor to four separate U.S. administrations, starting with President Nixon, President Ford, President Reagan, and President Clinton. Since then, you have been a, a well-credible and established commentator on CNN. I have watched you thousands of evenings bring wise, sane assessment to both the strengths and perhaps the weaknesses of multiple presidents. You, of course, um, are a voracious writer yourself. Your most recent book is Hearts Touched with Fire, how Great Leaders Are Made. This book was a passion project within you for several decades. I have absorbed some of the great lessons we'll talk about in a few moments. David, for those last few viewers and listeners that may not know you as a household sure. name, given we're a global podcast, would you just give a couple-minute review of the course of your incredible multi-decade career? Well, yes, you're kind. And I've uh, been very generous in your remarks. You're a, a quick, quick shorthand. I grew up in the segregated South uh, on a dirt road, but I came from a very strong family. Uh, my, my dad was, uh, we had with four sons in the family. My dad was chair of the math department at Duke University for 25 years. So I grew up in the, in the shadow, even though I was on a dirt road, I grew up in the shadow of one of our great universities. And that really have obviously affected me. Uh, I think I got my start in the arena 
uh, the public arena, mostly in the 19, early 1960s, uh, when the civil rights came to the fore and there was so much tension and bloodshed and, and the environment. And I went to work for a southern, new southern governor named Terry Sanford. He was, uh, Terry Sanford was our Jack Kennedy, charismatic, uh, well-meaning, high-purpose, high um, and it was a Democrat. And it was, it was a privilege to go to work for him. But I worked on civil rights uh, for Terry Sanford. We set up a council of, of white leaders and black leaders all across the, uh, the state uh, to focus on jobs and on education, but also to keep the peace, the racial peace. Because in 1963, you know, that, made, that was a year in which three young white men from went to Mississippi and were never seen again. They were found tortured and dead uh, only a few weeks later. So there is, you know, everybody at that time was on, on knife's edge because of that, you know, what, what, where that might lead. And in my case, working for Terry was, I, I have to tell you, Scott, I later had the opportunity, the privilege to work for presidents in the White House. And I, and I love that job. It's a privilege to be in the White House. But I think in terms of finding fulfillment, finding work that really touched my heart, it was working for Terry Sanford in the state on civil rights. We made a lot of progress. I was proud about that. But, you know, increasingly when young people come to talk to me about public service, they want to know, well, what can I do to make a difference? I used to tell them to go to Washington, D.C., because that's where the action was. That's not what I tell them anymore. Washington, D.C. is where the poison is. That's where people are so, you know, polarized and mean and ugly and lie like, you know, like hell there. And where the real action takes place increasingly now is at city and state level. If you want to make a difference and you can make a difference when you're young, it, it, the doors are open, especially with the new way we communicate on social media. This is a good time to be out um, testing your wits, trying to see, change things, understanding how difficult change is but understanding how important it is that this country get on a better track. Let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons, the leadership lessons that you have learned from each of sure. the four administrations. President Nixon. Okay. Now, for many of our audience, they weren't alive perhaps now when Nixon was president, one of the most controversial uh, administrations of our lifetime, probably an, a, a tortured genius. What, what, what is a leadership yeah. lesson? that you learned, perhaps um, don't do this or do this. What's the leadership lesson you learned working with President Nixon that our listeners and viewers could benefit from? Well, President Nixon was one of the brightest men I've met in politics. He certainly he was the best strategist. He and Henry Kissinger worked together as partners in the early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, splitting apart China from uh, Russia. Uh, and once we did that, we could sort of play a divide and conquer triangulation politics. And it made America, and we won the Cold War in part because they had a they had a strategy. So leadership is partly about having a long-term vision, a strategy of where you're trying to go, uh, and and sort of having uniform, bringing people together around in a team in the pursuit of that tragedy. But there's something there's perhaps a more important lesson from the from the Nixon days about leadership, and that is that Richard Nixon had demons inside him. He had never learned uh, to conquer. And they got the better of him. And eventually, you know, they forced He self-destructed. And he, for, he was the author of his own destruction. When David Frost from the BBC interviewed Nixon, said, what went wrong in Watergate, Mr. President? And Nixon said, I gave my enemies a sword, and then they ran me through. And that's exactly what it was. He did give his, give his enemies a sword. Um, 
Now, why is that important? Because in the early stages of leadership, most important thing is first to get the chance to know who you are, to have a, a, a set of conversations with you or yourself about who you are, what your values are, where you want to go in life, you know, what you believe in, so that you, in effect, develop a true north. And But the second part of that early stage leadership is not only do you have to know who you are, you need to be self-aware, but you've got to be you've got to be able to conquer your own temptations. Nixon never conquered those demons and they came back to bite him. You have to be able to keep those demons under control. We learned from the psychiatrist Carl Jung, who was a contemporary of Freud's. And Jung argued very persuasively that all of us have a, have a bright side to our personalities, but we also have a dark side. And it, it's knowing the difference between the two and then keeping the dark side under control is critical to leadership. Until you learn how to lead yourself, you cannot lead others. Only when you know how to lead yourself can you lead others. And I thought that was a very clear lesson from Richard Nixon. Uh, this is a master class in leadership. Everybody uh, uh, lean in. Talk about a leadership lesson you learned from President Ford. Well, Ford uh, was a very different animal from uh, Nixon. And one of the things I admire about Ford was he was a humble man. He did not expect to be president, but he had no airs about it. And he didn't need to be president in order to find vindication for his life, to find a rationale for his life. There were things he did earlier in life, his, his elections, his, his service in the military during World War II. There were a lot of things that did that. And I think that gave him an anchoring that made him a much, much better leader. And he was willing to do some tough things even without, you know, ballyhooing it too much. You know, Ford was the guy who understood that the Nixon years had been a nightmare. And he declared right there in his first speech when he took the oath of office, the long national nightmare, our long national nightmare is finally over. And, that, and that's what he did. He brought both, both humility and honesty back to the White House. And those served us well as a nation for, for a bridge from Nixon on to, on to future more active as president. Ford was not a major architecture, architectural genius. That wasn't his strength. Ford was strength was what all of us need is, is this sense of being well anchored as a human being, understanding yourself, and again, being in charge of your own temptations. David, I'm the father to three young sons, eight, 10, yeah. and 12. And I named all of them after my political heroes. My oldest son, who is 12, his name is Thatcher. He's named after uh, former prime minister and lady Margaret Thatcher. My youngest okay. son, my youngest son, his first name is Wentworth, but his middle name is Reagan. Wentworth Reagan Miller, after one of my political heroes, Ronald Reagan. Let's talk about the lesson you've learned from President Ronald Reagan. President Ronald Reagan, I think, um, I'm, I'm, I will tell you right up front that he was more conservative than I am. Uh, I've been pro-choice uh, all my life, um, but I nonetheless was drawn to Reagan, you know, partly because he asked me, um, and uh, of course appealed to my ego. Um, that, but also, I thought that Reagan uh, was a very well-anchored human being, even more so than Ford. Reagan had accomplished so much in life before he got to the presidency that he didn't need the office in order to feel successful. And that's really important for leaders that you not be, you know, you have to be aggressive, you have to be hungry, you have to have a vision and work like hell for it. But at the same time, you're still a human being. You better have some humility. You better have a lot of regard 
for others around you because you know they're going to be they're always going to be people smarter than you are somewhere in the crowd i guarantee it i all my life i've been around a lot of nobel prize winners and there's always somebody smarter in that room um you know so that's this sort of life is you've got to be willing to take it as you find it and do the best you can with it and reagan had something else reagan understood america and could talk to americans in ways that few other political leaders i have known uh, ever could um, you know, I, I will give, give you this analogy or this comparison, and that is when Charles de Gaulle died as president of France. He was the leader of the French for a long time, especially effective during World War II. Um, and when de Gaulle died, it was said that de Gaulle was not great because he was in, because he was in France. De Gaulle was great because France was in him. And that's what true leaders have. They have... They have, they have these sparky relationships, but they reach across uh, uh, differences and relate to each other and relate through language. Language is very, very important. Communication skills are very important to, to leaders today. Uh, but, but Reagan had that capacity to, uh, to speak in ways that were really uh, very, very uh, uh, mattered a great deal. And by the way, he had a terrific sense of humor. Uh, almost all these these people had a great sense of humor. Now, I'll just tell you a very quick story. Uh, Reagan hosted something called the G7 in Williamsburg, Virginia. He invited in all the leaders of seven other countries, major yeah. countries, uh, and he had to um, he had to prepare himself to be to sit down at what's called the bilateral one on one with each one of these other uh, seven leaders. And so he had to do a lot of preparation. We gave him a great big thick notebook, and Reagan was notoriously slow reader because he from Hollywood and he tended to memorize what he what he read. He remembered what he read, but he, he read slowly. So we were afraid that that uh, he would he would uh, try to read this this briefing book before the meetings, and he would be up all night and really be tired the next day and have one heck of a bad day. And if, if that were to occur, we knew for sure that Nancy Reagan would pick up the rolling pen and come after us. You did not want Nancy on your trail if you've made a mistake. So we, with some trepidation, Jim Baker, the chief of staff, gave Reagan this briefing book and said, Mr. President, go back go back to your place tonight. Just just skim this and try to get some sleep. It's really important. You don't have to read every word. But read, read, read all the essential stuff, but be, just skim it and come in. Well, the next morning at breakfast, we all gathered in about 15 minutes. After about 15 minutes, Reagan came in. He looked like he'd been hit by a Mack truck. He was, he was, his eyes were all baggy. He was, you know, he wasn't focused. He was just, he's a little bit of wandering uh, in his words. And finally, after about 15 minutes, he said, fellas, I've got a confession to make. I said, he said, um, I, you did a really good job on that breaking book. And I want to thank you for it. But did you know, did you know that the sound of music was on last night on TV? <laughs> well, you know, that's my favorite movie. I love that movie. So, I, n- I never, I never got, got a chance to read your briefing book, but I did. I watched the whole Sound of Music. I hope it's okay. Well, by that time, we're crushed because we can't possibly be prepared to do all these meetings without our briefing book. My God, we spent all that time on the briefing book. She's got to read them in order to know what to say. And we learned a big leadership lesson then, um, Scott, and it was this. When he went into the meetings that day, he was better than we had ever seen him. He was terrific. And why was he so terrific? Because he wasn't weighed down by all the facts and figures that we on the staff, in our arrogance, thought only if we stuff him with all of this can he get along. 
you know, we're so smart. We're the staff. Whether we're we can, you know, we can. He, he where is he going to be without us? Well, he was so good because Reagan understood a bigger truth. I mean, you know, the facts and figures are important, but what's really important is to understand the big picture. What he did with in that day with each of the leaders he met, he met was to go up on a mountaintop and talk about the past and talk about the future, but do it in simple terms, in, in inspiring terms, but in ways that understand each other. And don't worry too much about the briefing books. So you're saying Julie Andrews was leading American public policy for several years after that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> David. Couldn't be in better. I think what, um, what separates you from other advisors, one, you're a great storyteller, but you also crossed the, crossed the aisle, so to speak, right? You yeah. served in three Republican administrations. You also served yeah. in the Democratic White House with President Clinton, yeah. also a complicated character like President yep. Nixon. What are some... Uh, what's a key lesson you learned from President Clinton? And we'll dive into the book. Sure. Well, the, the, a lot of this is in the book. So I'm glad to, I'm glad yes. to give a little bit of taste to the book uh, right here and now. Uh, Bill Clinton was, was, was one of the smartest, academically smartest people I've ever met in life. He was, uh, he was a, a guy, you, you'd walk into the Oval Office with you know, three or four people sit down with him on an important subject. And he would be very, very engaged in the conversation as you went. But it, even as we were, when, when we were talking, he was listening, and he listened to Apple, but he also used that time to fill out a New York Times crossword puzzle. Now, I, don't, I, I, I uh, you know, found that sort of like, oh, I, I was sort of in awe that anybody could have, you know, talk and you know, fill out a crossword puzzle, that sophistication at the same time. Uh, but actually, I was a little insulted that he came in and dismissed us so easily uh, and pushed off him aside. But Clinton was a very, very fast, quick reader. Now, he had some of the same traits that Nixon did. He had some of the same. They, they wouldn't want to be found in the same sentence with each other. But he and Nixon both had this temptation to, to stray from the mainstream thinking or mainstream morals or whatever. Um, and it, it was a... You know, I think I think he's paid a price for that. More, I think he's a better president than some of the historians in today's Me Too environment you know, believe him to have been. I think I think he did a lot of good for the country. So I, I was proud to work for him. Um, but I also feel that Clinton made it. I, I think the Clinton experience uh, showed one thing, and that is it's sometimes a big big leap to go from middle America into the White House and be president. That's especially true for people who come from smaller states because you simply haven't had the background that you would otherwise. Jimmy Carter came from a small, relatively small state in Georgia and it took him a while. He was a failed president for a while because he had, a, he had to make such a big leap and he stumbled around and he had, he had, this, he had a lot of problems and you know, said, uh, and, and, and he knew it, but he couldn't, he couldn't figure out how to deal with it. Um, Clinton had some of that same issue coming up from Arkansas, a landlocked state. He was a gifted uh, governor. One of the reasons I was so close to him, we were friends, was I was so impressed with the quality of his work as governor of Arkansas. He just did a bang-up job, and I thought he would be a good president. But, but, it, but it was true when he got, he got the job of president. It's a different job. It's a much more complex job. Uh, and it, it requires a lot of sort of uh, understanding of, of, of a country that has different pockets. We're not all one people, you know, we're a conglomeration of a lot of different kinds of people. And 
he needed to learn how to work with some people he had never spent time with before. He did that over time, and he got to be a better president. Um, and uh, again, he too, he too had a sense of humor, which was good, which I, which I liked about him. And uh, I think Bill Clinton can still, like Barack Obama, uh, still has it in him to do some good things for the country, especially in working with young people. David, thank you for that recap. In many ways, your book is a, a handbook, a manual for how to become a great yeah. leader. Yep, I hope so. And, and uh, one of, the, one of the, uh, the themes of your book is a focus on character, is a focus on, yes. is you kind of call it your finding your true north, right? Our mutual friend, yeah. Bill George, wrote a book about that. Yep. Yep. It, it, seems lost. It, it, it seems a bit lost, at least in the political arena, in the public service I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that every politician is corrupt, or I don't I even relate to that idea. I don't think that's true. But it seems yes. like it's increasingly rare to be able to be elected I, to public office and have a true right. north and then get reelected. What has happened, right. what has happened in our country where there appears to be a focus on personality and charisma and, um, and those trappings? versus I have strong character, I have these beliefs, I tell the truth, I do what I think is right, and I yeah. kind of let the consequences yeah. fall where they lay. What's your insight on that dichotomy? Well, I think you described it extremely well, Scott, and it has a lot to do, it's anchored in the culture, the culture of our time, the political culture of our times. I, I'm increasingly of the view that one of the major factors behind the decline of American politics and polarization was that for a number of years in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, uh, we were governed by the World War II generation. Uh, we had seven presidents, starting with Jack Kennedy, stopping with George Bush Sr., that seven presidents, Democrats and Republicans. Every single one of them wore a military uniform during the war. Only one, Jimmy Carter, uh, was in the Naval Academy when the war ended, but he went on to serve honorably as a submariner. Those years in the, in the, in the military, especially in winning a war, turned us into a can-do country and a proud country. We, we were proud of what we had accomplished. We had every reason to do that. We were the leader, leaders of the free world. Uh, there was much about our country at that time uh, that to make us proud. Well, the people who were in that World War II generation Left started leaving the stage in great numbers in the 1990s. And they were replaced increasingly by the baby boomers. Uh, and frankly, the boomers were a generation that was banged around a lot, but never had a war that united them uh, in, the, in the way World War II united so many Americans who went to fight in that war. And indeed, the, the boomers, we had, we had uh, and I count myself among them, I was born during the war, but sort of a supreme if you would, uh, and so I think I bear some of the responsibility for the mistakes and the disappointments of the boomers. Uh, but but at any event, the the Vietnam, in particular, but also the, some of the other struggles, the civil rights struggle, and everything else, split us apart in a big way. And Vietnam was an axe right down the middle of our generation. Big question for for boomers was: Did you go? Where, did you go to Nam or not? Or did you duck? And if you and if you went to Nam, were you upriver or were you downriver or somewhere in a very safe place? In other words, did you put your life on the line for the country in Vietnam or did you leave it to me to do that? And a lot of times the answer comes back, hey, we boomers ducked it. Um, and you know, we've had five presidents since George Bush Sr. 
um, in the sort of in the nineties and and in, in the early part of the twenty first century, we've had five presidents. Not one single one has been in active military service. Not one. And I think that that has a. I think it gave a certain permissiveness where society a certain sort of search for pleasure. Uh, as opposed to sort of discipline and the hard work that goes with leadership, you know, we became, I think we became, uh, I, I think we, we became too self-congratulatory. Um, we eventually began to have strong differences in those, and we, we then polarized those differences. We poisoned those differences. We politicized those differences. Uh, so today, you know, and I think that started with the, with the Gingrich years. Uh, you know, he really, he, he was, he was an extremely clever leader. You know, he really won, won the house back for the Republicans, but a lot of the kind of politics he played became sort of prevalent in the house. And then as candidates moved from the house to run for the Senate, a lot of those candidates brought Gingrich kind of politics to the Senate. And we haven't been the same since. Uh, and I don't, I don't think Newt deserves all the blame. I'm just thinking a lot of it happened uh, during his during the time his generation came in. And we're still looking for, I think one of the main reasons, one of the main points of my book is, it's time for the boomers to begin leaving the stage much more rapidly. It's time to pass the torch, as they say, you know, to a new generation. We have people waiting in the wings, Generation X has been waiting in the wings for a long time to have a chance to participate in the governance of our country they need. They need to have greater responsibility for the next few years. Over the long term, we, we desperately need to get millennials and Generation Z prepared for lives of leadership and service. They're going to be the ones we count on. They're going to be our equivalent of the World War II veterans. I think if we have this, this, these new generations, they, they, they won't serve in the military. We don't need all these people to serve in the military. We do need to serve, serve in society to do things in, our, in the public arena, to, to be giving a year back. I believe in that. I believe very strongly in national service. And that is that every 18 to 24 year old ought to be strongly encouraged to spend a year serving their community, whether it be working in a schoolhouse or working in a hospital or working in a jailhouse, but reaching out and helping fellow citizens get back on their feet and enjoy better lives. And I think what we can do is you if you give a year back to the country, we'll give you a year off on your on your debt. You give us two years, we'll give you two years off on your debt, and so forth. You grew up in rural America, we'll give you a job in in, in urban America. You grew up in the city, we'll give you a job in the farmland. What we need to do is create a set of experiences among our people, among young people, in which they take responsibility for the future. You know, this is all about it. whether we conquer the climate, whether we get. You know, the abortion question resolved peacefully, whether we can, we can restore the presidency as an institution, whether we can restore trust uh, in our institutions and in our leaders. A lot of that is going to be shoved over on the millennials and, and, and Generation Z. I think they can be up for it. I'm actually, I'm, I'm a short-term pessimist. I think we're going to have a lot of trouble going forward, more trouble even than we've had before. But I think long-term, you look out on the horizon, there are a lot of good things happening. There are a lot of young people who are starting to step up. You know, look what just, you know, what happened in these hearings on, on uh, January 6th. And what, who was the person who spoke truth to power? It wasn't one, some 70-year-old. It was a 20, 25-year-old woman who was on staff, who was a, had the bravery 
to, st to stand up and, and tell the truth as she saw it, as she understood it. We ought to appreciate her and people like her because they're, they're the future. And this, this group that's coming up, that's in their 20s now and early 30s, they have, they have a lot to offer, but we need them. We need them in service. Oh, I think you are right on. I think that same group is going to disrupt organizational culture. Yep. They're going to disrupt uh, organized religion. They're going to disrupt yep. institutional politics. David, let's pivot. Another theme in your book is this idea yes. of personal responsibility, taking accountability for your actions, owning yes. up to your mistakes, perhaps even offering apologies. Why is it so rare, if ever, in a fairly forgiving American global culture, Will you ever see a president or a senator, you know, walk up to the camera and say, you know what, I made a mistake. I was wrong. I was tempted and stepped outside of my marriage. Or I, you know, took this contribution I shouldn't have. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Like you, I made a mistake. I'm owning up to it. I'm asking you, you, you never see this. What's going on in the yeah. Oval Office with all the advisors when the president or the vice president or the senator or a cabinet fisher, they deny, they obfuscate, they beat around the bush, they politic, and they yeah. never really own up to it. When everyone knows, yeah, that's probably not true. And a fairly forgiving electorate, why is it so rare for a leader to ever own up and admit on camera, I was wrong, I made a mistake? Uh, because we live in a 50-50 politics. Uh, and that is, uh, we haven't seen this since the late 19th century. When there were three elections in a row, when, when the winner essentially won by a point or less. And what we learned was when, you, when, you're, when you're so evenly divided, it's, you get more of this rancid kind of politics. When it's like when, there, when there's one party that's the dominant party and wins like two or three elections in a row, as say the Democrats did in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, um, and you have one party that's in effect the sun and another that's the moon. Then you find that, that it's much easier to get the bipartisan work done. I agree with you on that. And, but I think the, the lesson for now is, because yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Americans are much more forgiving than, than, our, than our politicians realize. There's a sense among politicians that they make one little mistake and they, and they go public with it, they're going to get their heads taken off. You know, that, that their rival will spend a zillion dollars to bring them down on that one little piece of, um, of behavior. Uh, and so they, they're they're cowards about this. They're, you know, but I do remember when John F. Kennedy, you know, one of those World War II generation, uh, you know, when he, when he when he got into office, the first thing he did, one of the first things he did, was order up an an invasion of Cuba, uh, and to to free up Cuba from Castro, um, and he sent he, anyway. It turned into the whole thing turned into a fiasco. It was badly managed. He, frankly, his leadership was poor, um, and he knew it. He was just a callow young uh, president at that point. Uh, and, and so what did he do? Kennedy went in front of the cameras and said, listen, it's historically true uh, that victory has many fathers, but defeat is always an orphan. Nobody wants to admit, right, admit right. defeat. But he said, I take responsibility for the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. I'm the commander-in-chief put it on my desk, put it on me. And you know what happened as a result of that, Scott? His popularity in the Gallup polls went up, went up by 10%. There was a temptation to say, let's try that all over again, Mr. President. Uh, but it, it was uh, because it worked so well. I saw that again with Reagan 
uh, when we had the Marines who were blown up in, in Lebanon, the Marines, yep. the, the Marine barracks there were hit by a terrorist attack, and they like, like a large number of Marines died. Um, and during the Reagan administration, people, right? Yeah, it was during the Reagan administration. So Reagan ordered a tell me what happened uh, uh, survey and, and investigation by the Defense Department. And he got the he got the report back. And I remember this day very clearly. He got the report back. He thumbed through it. He saw that General X was blamed for this and General Y was blamed for that and General Z was blamed for something else. He put down the paper. He walked outside to the cameras and say, this, this report is very, very well done. But I'm the commander in chief. I'm the one who takes sole responsibility. If you don't like it, come after me. We did the wrong thing. I made a mistake. It was a very generous assessment. And Reagan got through it again, strengthened because he was honest and he was humble and he admitted defeat. David, I'm mindful of our time. I could interview you for hours. Uh, maybe two more questions and I'll let you get back to your, your weekend. Sure. Uh, you obviously had a 20 plus year career with CNN. Uh, I watched yep. you on numerous evenings over the last two decades. One of my favorite morning activities, I'm an early riser. I wake up at 4 a.m. Okay. every day. My, the first thing okay. I do is I uh, pour a cup of coffee and then I look at both CNN and Fox. I'm, uh -huh. I'm, inter I'm entertained at what is just a remarkably different assessment of the facts, a presentation yeah. of the yeah. facts, right? And right. I think there's a lot of Americans now that don't see either of them as journalists. They see them as commentators. Everything Fox says right. is a lie. Everything CNN says is, is an operation of the Democratic yep. wing and on and on and on, right? Well, right. you've obviously been aligned with CNN the last couple of decades. And right. what... Uh, you obviously have a, a, a multi-decade reputation of being a policy advisor, a presidential advisor, a journalist, a teacher, an author, a scholar. What do you want the American people to know about the media, the responsibility the media have to report the facts of the pandemic but not hype us all into you know, paranoia? The, 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 the reason to report on Trump's latest tweet but not let it become a division amongst families and that's not your responsibility to, um, totally, but give us some sense of encouragement that the media still takes their responsibility with great gravitas and that their job is to present us the facts and let us hopefully make our own decisions on them. Well, I think the media, um, going all the way back to, to Watergate, uh, has tried to play a responsible role uh, in and putting a spotlight on questionable activities and trying to figure out what's the truth and what's not the truth uh, and what should we do about it. And when the, trips, when the chips have been down in a very, very serious way, I think the media has actually done a pretty good job. Let's take Watergate, for example. It, by Woodward and Bernstein, whom I, whom I knew, I knew we have been to school, we were different years, but we went to school together. Um, and uh, I, I, I gained great respect for him because uh, when Nixon had approved that I'd be served as a back channel to Woodward, so Bob and I talked periodically uh, during that Watergate period, and he was the one who was really frightened. He was anxious about the the, the you know what his his work might do because he realized the pillars of government could easily come tumbling down, and he wanted to be right. And, he, and whereas the people I was working for, the chief of staff, the White House, Bob Alderman, and head of the domestic policy, uh, John Ehrlichman. You know, they were telling us on staff that Nixon and the people around him had never done anything wrong. This was all made up, fabrication of the press. You can't trust the press, et cetera, et cetera. But it turned out the press was being pretty honest and kept our democracy alive. 
And in the same way, I think the press played a pretty responsible role, not as responsible, but a pretty responsible role in the coverage of uh, Trump the president. Uh, having said that, I do think we we made some mistakes along the way. I think, and I'm, I'm proud to be associated with CNN. I think they've done a lot of good things. But they themselves, I think, would tell you that they and others in the press gave, we gave too much treatment to Trump. He got sort of a lot of free airtime that was, you know, other other candidates couldn't get because he was so outlandish that it was a, it was a story. It was like covering the circus. Um, but I do think, I think we gave him too much airtime. And I assume if he runs this time, it will be much more balanced than I, I and I do think that we bear some responsibility in the media too for sometimes hyping stories that that don't need to be hyped. If I may use an analogy for another part, you know, when when there's storms coming now, you got a Category Two storm storm coming, and frequently on the Weather Channel, what you get is, oh my God, it's going to be the biggest storm since you get your ark out because you're going to have to be in the ark. Everybody's going to be flooded, and it's stand stand back, stand back. The catastrophe is on the way. You, the, you, sometimes people sell fear on the media as a way to get eyeballs to, and people to tune in. Well, you know, we, that's for that's where the leadership of the media comes in, to yeah. act as watchdogs yeah. on their own operation. There are some extraordinarily talented people who are in the press, some of whom hate, hate um, uh, what's, what's going on in Trump and the Republican Party. But there are also people on the, on the right, I must tell you, who feel like, They've been mistreated a lot too. That they, you know, they've been misrepresented. That they were, we talk about them being shallow. That they're, that they uh, are co-partners in, in, in perfidious uh, behavior. Uh, so I, I don't think I don't think there's anybody who comes into this party with, you know, totally clean hands. Uh, I, know, I think all of us. Are I'm no glad question. to hear you say that about the storms. I feel like the last five hurricanes that CNN has covered is. I was convinced I was going to die in Salt Lake City from the biggest storm yeah. in the history of mankind <laughs> off the coast of Pensacola. Yeah. I, I do think you're right. I think that the media has hyped. Uh, it's a business, we know this. Um, uh, so yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that. F final question. Um, sure. Not my first rodeo. Uh, it's been a rough six years, uh, a really rough yeah. six years. Uh, and I yep. think the Trump wave has stoked that to his benefit and perhaps to his policy yep. benefits. I don't recall the acrimony between Trump and Dukakis, or sorry, Bush and Dukakis. I don't recall, recall that acrimony between Senator Dole and, you know, Obama, uh, or Clinton, rather. I don't recall that between Romney and Obama. It seems like this is the new normal, that you can say yep. whatever you want to without any reservation. Uh, you, the, the more outlandish you are, perhaps the more appealing to some. Uh, yep. and, I, and I worry that many of us don't vote for character anymore. We vote for entertainment, or we vote for disrupt um, the apple cart, you know, quote, drain the swamp. Um, yeah. What are you encouraged about going forward? What am I encouraged about? I, I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I am encouraged about the long-term future because I do think that, you know, if we can get, uh, if we can get the, the, the baby boomers to leave the stage, and that may not be easy, there's some of them sort of clinging to the curtains. Um, I, th I think if the, the, the baby boomers realize they have, have a responsibility here to look after the future, what, what we need from the baby boomers, and I think they can provide it, is they, they, we need their wisdom, we need their mentoring of younger people. 
to prepare people, younger people for, for lives of responsibility and service, as I mentioned. Um, but I'm, I'm also, I'm very encouraged by the people who want to get into the arena now. We have two streams of people I would, I would mention right up front. One is um, we, we see a, a growing number of people who are people of color, especially women, uh, who are active, young women who are actively getting engaged in the arena. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's worth remembering that what we've seen here recently with the Me Too movement, that was started by a young black woman. Um, the Black Lives Matter, that was started, that was an initiative started by three young black women uh, in their 20s and early 30s. Um, in my judgment, some people of color, especially the women, uh, occupy the moral high ground now. They're the people who are calling out saying, this is not acceptable. Yeah. We're not going to live this way continually. So I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with that. I don't share their politics. You know, the AOCs of the world are quite far to the left for my taste. But I celebrate the fact that they want to get in the arena and change the world. I, you know, give them credit for that. They're not stay-at-home couch potatoes. They, they really do care. And over time, as we learned in the, the Vietnam period in the 60s and 70s, that when we thought all these radicals were out there demonstrating, it turned out a lot, not, a lot of those radicals were right. You know, what, what we needed to do about, you know, women, the rights of women, and abortion questions and things like that, what we did, need to do about inequities that exist, what we need to do about climate. You know, the, the, a lot of people of color really, I think, uh, in back in the 60s and 70s, showed shone light on things. They, they didn't necessarily come to the conclusions I would have. But I, but I really admire the way they got me. This young woman, Miss Hutchison, who got up and defended, or at least told her the truth as she knew it, um, in in this in the January sixth. I think she's she's now increasingly representative. But you see this in, in overseas, and a woman like Greta Thunberg, young young girl, 15, 16 years old, holding a sign up outside the Swedish Parliament, and eventually mobilizes thousands upon thousands of people. You see it in Malala in Pakistan, who shot in the face by the Taliban, but is out there crusading for young women and their and a duty to, or responsibility to get an education. It's a Nobel Prize winner, youngest of 15 or 16. You see it in the Parkland kids who were in, in Florida. Uh, and I'm just mentioning you see it in, in, in folks who started Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. There, time and time again, now we're seeing uh, young people step up and making a difference. Uh, and realizing that change is hard. It's darn hard. People are going to come after you. Or you're going to get, you know, you're going to take some blows. Uh, you're going to, and it's going to take a long, long time. You know, it took all the way from Seneca Falls, 1848, to the 1920s before women really got the right to vote. Think about those over 70 years spent in that, in that process. So it's going to take time. We're going to have setbacks along the way. But I think ultimately we will prevail, especially especially if we prepare the young, those who are younger, for lives of service and leadership. David Gergen, you are a class act. Not everyone listening to this or watching it will agree on your politics, but everyone will agree on your hard-earned wisdom. Thank you for joining us today. Your book is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. I mentioned it is a phenomenal leadership manual for you know groups and organizations, companies to have uh, a book club, to read it chapter by chapter and kind of, you know, tease out what's relevant to them given their age, their tenure, their role as a leader, whether it be for, you know, public or private companies, nonprofits, you name it. Your, your service to our country 
is greatly appreciated and acknowledged. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening today to you. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Okay, Scott, you're, you were terrific again. I'm so impressed by, by the, those books that you've been reading and what you're doing for the country. By, you know, not, not many people have the guts to stand up and do a show about, about books, uh, but, it, but it makes it, it, it's actually really important for the country. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Your book will have a great place on our wall after today's interview. Okay, and, okay take care. I mean, how does it get any bigger than David Gergen? We are delighted to bring you each week new thought leaders, and we'll see you next week for a new conversation on leadership.